Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. This year, the theme of Radio BX is radical scale, the people, processes, and technology that will ensure our buildings meet the dramatic needs of our future. A natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings, Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our 2021 sponsor, National Grid. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Good morning. I'm Yatza Frank with the Building Energy Exchange, and today we are speaking with H.G. Chazelle, founder and CEO of Advanced Energy Group. One of the primary challenges, uh, I would say, of addressing the climate change impacts of buildings is the enormously diverse cohort of professionals that have a stake in the performance of those buildings. Uh, There are building owners, building and facility managers, there are tenants, residents, You have investment managers, energy consultants, utilities, city and state agencies, contractors, vendors, and really everything in between. This diversity, I think, makes every problem in our sector complicated. Um, And Mr. Chazelle has set out, it seems to me, to address this issue quite directly, not by offering specific consulting services per se, but by creating a, a vehicle for dialogue amongst these various players. Uh, it's a unique approach, and one of the many reasons we're excited to have HG on the program today. Mr. Chazelle, welcome to Radio BX. Thanks so much for having me. This is exciting. I'm glad you're here. I wanted to start uh, the conversation with the journey that brought you to where you are today. Uh, I'm curious how far back in either your professional career or even your education did you know you were going to be focused on the energy sector? Yeah, this was an interesting question to chew on. Um, It started for me about energy, but I would say likely not in the way we think about energy for this dialogue. Um, Yeah, I grew up in a situation where my my father's a psychiatrist and my mother, uh, she is a psychoanalyst. And Mm. so they, in Baltimore, they started the the Young Society of Baltimore. And so I grew up being kind of a captive student of Carl Jung and, you know, please don't ask me about my dreams again, kind of situation growing up. (laughs) Um, And the, the experience though, and then studied psychology in college was that um, I just became very interested in the energy of intention and space Hmm. and that relationship, you know, that, that energetic connection between our intentions and the space we're in and how they become a mirror for one another, an amplifier for one another. And often we're just not conscious of that relationship, that energetic relationship between our intentions and our space. And that led me ultimately to, for seven years or so, to be a full-time feng shui practitioner not long after graduating college. Wow. um, Kind of quit my corporate job to go pursue this because it just meant so much to me from a place of curiosity and then just this conviction that this is something important to understand. And feng shui kind of validated that this, there is a very important connection between our environment, our intention 
And the better we understand that language, the more powerful it can uh, help us in terms of having a life that of meaning and then also of creating environments that are meaningful and are healthy. And then as I'm having these thoughts and what was fun was to reminisce a little on my first connection to New York is I was coming in to work with some top brokers who got the concept of feng shui early within Douglas Elliman and Barbara Corcoran's office, uh, getting into some amazing spaces in New York, loving the work. And now kind of it's interesting to be circling back at this point in my life on this. Yeah. Um, but I would just say to kind of close out that thought on it was it is so important. And, and what I, while I was thinking about these thoughts, this kind of our consciousness around sustainability and its importance started growing. This is why I went into architecture mm. um, was to kind of see if that would be my vehicle for kind of connecting these two in a, you know, a more significant way. And that really led me down this path to meet Audrey Zibelman, who um, after coming out of architecture into consulting work, had a vision for the importance of interconnection and understanding how these systems of systems need to work together in a way that really can drive value and, and benefit. And that just got me down the road of energy and I joined her startup and Soon after, I was working in New York City on the Con Edison Smarker Demonstration Project, going to big building owners, saying, I've got some money to help you upgrade your building automation systems so that they can right. you know, engage in remote demand response. Was that with Grid Market? Grid Market came later. Later, okay. Grid Market really was an inspiration from being the lead facilitator for the first Con Edison Energy Storage Working Group. Mm. Um, you know, Just thinking about... At that time, Con Edison was on the kind of really coming to the realization that battery storage is really important. And we got to figure out the role it plays, the role we play around battery storage. And we started the process, right, of facilitating stakeholder dialogue and engagement around the issue of battery storage. And early on, it was pretty clear that we see buildings in a certain way that if that perception of a building doesn't change for a city like New York, we are so unprepared to deliver the future we need for New York. Yeah. And part of that is seeing buildings as these integrated potential virtual generators or these. And so getting a real inventory of the available space in buildings for battery storage would be critical. And the idea of grid market was to kind of really understand the market for distributed energy resources, and then do it at a portfolio level so that it could attract the right level of investment and support. It seems like your background in architecture um, really helps you engage with folks in this community because you probably have a more tangible sense of how buildings are put together than a lot of the stakeholders that are adjacent to the space. That seems like it's continued to inform your work. Is that is that true? I would certainly say the spirit of architecture very much resonates still with me. It's kind of my North Star about manifesting intention, uh, taking vision to reality, understanding that that's a very interdependent, interconnected path to do. Yeah. That's why I love architecture. Yeah. I would say regarding the question you asked, when I started at Veridity, having an architecture background I just felt very humbled about the difference between having an architecture background and being able to communicate with a building chief, right? 
different worlds. Totally different, yeah. Totally different worlds. And yeah. you can get thrown out quick uh, from a meeting with a building chief and his team if they don't feel like you can keep up when they talk about systems and how they work together. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, you know, it goes back to what I was saying in the opening about all these different stakeholders that are in this space that have such a heavy influence on the performance of buildings. Um, they all speak largely different languages. Um, and I think it feels like your background in both psychology and um, architecture and the various uh, roles you've you've uh, put yourself in makes you very well suited to kind of bridging um, those those divides. You also have a little bit of an entrepreneurial streak. Um, you you've been speaking about intention, living a life of meaning, uh, and I imagine that those uh, sort of ideas informed the development of zero carbon coffee. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came about and what the really tangible goals are there with that, with that effort? You know, zero carbon coffee was just this growing sentiment that we need to somehow put consumption on our side for our future versus against us. And that's a difficult thing to do with human nature. And I just kept on seeing opportunities where how can we somehow transform our consumption into something that leads us on a path of redemption and it just was circulating my mind often, especially in this work, right? Uh, and I work, yeah. with, you know, I work with four city governments, one of which is the DC um, Department of Energy and Environment. And one of my key contacts there, Edward Yim, I asked him once, I said, well, what's the metric that really keeps you up at night on achieving all these promises? And he said, you know, it's per capita carbon footprints this doesn't become an internalized personal thing, right? Then we're never going to get there. If I don't care about how my water gets hot or how I get stay warm at night and or understand how I use a gas stove versus an induction stove, if it doesn't come to me and be real, we're going to have such a hard time actualizing this, yeah. this vision. And that got me thinking about coffee because coffee is something people, it's a ritual. People do it everywhere. They do it all the time. And it has the potential to be a vehicle where it could turn into something good. So concept is coffee has a good margin on it. Typically, why not take part of that margin and take, you know, a typical bag, a 12 ounce bag of coffee. It's got about a 10 pound uh, carbon footprint to it. Mm. Well, our coffee gives you a hundred pounds of carbon offsets for every bag that you use. Wow. And, and, you know, to make that happen, we've got a source from the right coffee farms. We've got to be connected to the right processes. And I got really lucky that I got connected to a man who just lives and breathes coffee. It's, he's an entrepreneur in it. He's in New York city, the roaster that, you know, our coffee is roasted in long Island city. And uh, we started talking and I was like, is this a crazy idea? What I'm thinking here about using coffee as a medium and he thought about it. I was like, no, I really like it. I can see where you're going with this. And then he had all the expertise around how to do that. And we we're having dinner one night at um, District Taco, which is no longer there <laughs> by Con Edison. And uh, his now wife said, yeah, like zero carbon coffee. And that's how zero carbon coffee uh, was started. That's and, fantastic. Uh, we were just, you know, it's fun. We were top five men's journal gifts for uh, Christmas. 2020. So that blew out our inventory immediately. Wow. Yeah. So would. <laughs> yeah. So now we're just wanting to get it into offices who care about scope three emissions, right? It's 
you can track it. And uh, we've, we've gotten in some really cool discussions about some carbon offset sponsors to work with us too. That's great. Well, raising our hand here at BX, we have a little espresso machine and I yeah. don't think we can have any other coffee than zero carbon coffee at our space. So I love it. It's on the way. We're going to have to work on that. Definitely. Moving back into the work you're currently doing uh, in energy space, uh, Advanced Energy Group is is a platform, I would say, as much as it is a company, sort of engaging stakeholders in key cities, sort of advancing clean energy goals. Uh, could you just describe how the platform is structured and 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 the activities that it, it takes on each year? Sure. Yeah. It, um, and I've been calling it a platform really from the beginning, and maybe that's just the architecture perspective on it. <laughs> like I want to construct something, but you know, it it really started. Before 2016, when I was doing work, expansion of Veridity Energy into Chicago, working with some real estate portfolios out there and really just coming up against the problem again, that complex energy projects for a positive future require stakeholder alignment ahead of time. Otherwise, you go down the path to do something that you know is valuable and important and needed, and you don't arrive because you didn't think that this stakeholder needed to be brought on board to be a part of understanding it, or you didn't appreciate the unintended consequence of that action to someone else. So your success rate's really low. Um, look at how many flow batteries didn't make it, right? Flow battery companies, great concept, but again, locking all the stakeholders ahead of time. So inspiration for Advanced Energy Group was to seed a conversation around this early, get people aligned, the right diversity of stakeholders ahead of time on pain points that need to be overcome. And then start getting in the habit of trying to overcome them under challenging timelines. Um, you know, I would never start an advanced energy group had I not talked to Chris Wheat, uh, Chief Sustainability Officer of Chicago at the time, who had just Manuel, Rahm Emanuel said, no, we're staying in. Trump is out, but we're in, in terms of the Paris Climate Accord. And we're going to achieve these promises. Okay. Intention, right? Showing up. That gets me yep. excited. But then Chris <laughs> says, the truth is we make the promise, but we are not the ones who are going to deliver it. That is only going to come from stakeholders coming together and actually working as teams. And I was like, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> that is going to be so hard. And I'm like, okay, well, that's what I want to work on. So yeah. that's how it started. I got some companies like SNC Electric and others to say, I get what you're saying. Yeah, we'll buy the coffee. And, you know, from there, it just started growing. I, I reached into some the offices of the mayor's offices of different cities and say, you made a promise that you can't achieve without collaboration and alignment of stakeholders. I'm willing to be in that space to start developing a community that understands that this is a platform for alignment and action. Will you partner with me? Will you support this concept? Right. Right. So that led me to working with the mayor's office of sustainability with Suzanne DeRoche, Kyle Way. Um, recently Mark Chambers was able to participate in what we do. And then in Boston with Brad Swing, and, and, uh, it's just been great. And then I go to who I see are those critical stakeholder public and private organizations and say, I'm going to help develop this. So you have a place to be most efficient and effective with aligning people towards real outcomes. Will you sponsor this? 
And that's the business model really of Advanced Energy Group, annual sponsorships, public and private, that enable me to lead a quarterly stakeholder challenge framework to address the key aspects needed to, to focus on so that cities can achieve their carbon and equity goals. And there's four cities that you're working in, is that right? Right, so we work on a quarterly basis in Washington, DC, New York City, Boston, and Chicago. On an annual basis, we do the Caribbean. Uh, 2019, I had the great opportunity to work with the city of San Francisco for a year. Great, and when you say quarterly, there's one of there's a there's a stakeholder platform each quarter in each of those cities. So you got you're running sixteen of these. Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm sorry to lay it out for you like that. <laughs> well, you know, I'm doing it this time with my slippers still on, but before I was in every you know it's, it was quite a haul. Yeah, I bet. I'll bet. Um, and how are each of these quarterly engagements structured? Uh, they, do they vary wildly each time? No, the beauty of kind of the first major commitment was to decide I was not going to do an annual conference. I'm not in the conference business. I'm not in. Right. I want to facilitate a constructive dialogue. So then I had to commit, what was my cadence? And I said, I'm going to do quarterly. So that kind of has been the case from the beginning. So it's quarterly meetings that happen. And then it was a question, well, how many cities can I take on to do this in? So I, I four. Um, and then the topics then are the same across all the cities. Q1, we cover critical infrastructure, equity, and resilience. Q2, which is the one we're coming into, we cover buildings and construction. Q3, grid modernization. And Q4, mobility and transportation. So for nearly five years, we've been circulating through that topic cycle. Wow. And I've gone from wanting to see this as a platform into now being an arena for professional sports level stakeholder engagement and action. This is the US Open of climate change and equity is what Advanced Energy Group is about, developing for our sponsors and our participants. And you described it as a challenge. How are, how are the challenges structured? Yes, so every quarterly, uh, quarterly stakeholder challenge is a three-part competition. First part is a speaker challenge where four invited speakers have eight minutes and five slides to address what they see as a critical obstacle that must be overcome as it relates to the topic in order for that city to achieve its carbon and equity goals. And so every speaker, eight minutes, five slides, and their fifth slide has to finish a statement. For instance, for Q1, it was regarding critical infrastructure and resilience. In order for New York City to achieve its carbon and equity goals, the most critical obstacle to overcome is, and they have to finish that sentence. Hmm. And then once every speaker has presented, we get into a 20, 25 minute discussion. How would we prioritize these? What are the common denominators? What are the outliers? Where do we need to focus if we were triaging this issue together? Now that we're all assembled, where do we focus? And there's, it ultimately gets down to a winner. Yeah. That goes to the next part, part two, the breakout room challenge, where I take this group of diverse stakeholders and put them in rooms of 10 to 12, and they've got about 45 minutes to come up with a viable 12-month solution that could overcome that obstacle that includes three quarterly milestones that would be reported on throughout the year. And the room votes again. Um, and it's, it's a discussion-style vote. 
Yeah. Um, and then so we end up after that having a, an agreed to solution to an agreed to problem. And the final part of the three-part competition is, well, who volunteers to do something about it? Who volunteers to get on the field and hold themselves accountable to actually deliver this as a volunteer? Last year, we had 175 leaders across four cities in the Caribbean volunteer to make stuff happen in 12 months. That's amazing. I love the format. It's so fun. How, how do you determine who the right participants are in each of these forums? Today, I'll, I'll share what I thought was just a great conversation. So I'm in the process right now of developing my Q2 agenda across all my cities. So I've got to go find these speakers, four speakers for every city. Uh, so at least 16 speakers to do the challenge. And I'm talking, uh, I talked today with Fernando Arias, who is the director of sustainability. He might even have a, a stronger title than that, but he's the critical sustainability leader at Clark Construction. And so I've invited him to participate in our Washington DC upcoming stakeholder challenge. We got to talking, he wanted to know more about the format, but once he got what I was trying to do, he started saying, oh, you, we really need to make sure this person is there. This mm. is exactly what they do. They bring such resources to the table. So then he mentioned this great person from HOK and then Nuveen. And so right. that's how it really goes. We've kind of gotten to a point of momentum where invited speaker challenges understand that this is about outcomes. And so they suggest people. I have a core commitment to equity through this process from gender to race, right? And so I'm, I'm always looking to make sure that I'm investing and in make that being present, both as invited stakeholders to participate and also speakers. So that, that's, that's the way we go about it. It's all by invitation only to participate and then recommendation and referrals. That's great. Um, speaking about the equity issue a little bit more, I imagine this also makes its way into the content for each of the quarterly sort of forums. I mean, energy issues are so directly related to environmental justice, to resource equity. Is it a challenge at all to make sure that those issues are sort of front and center in these conversations, which when you're talking about energy and efficiency and, and carbon, um, things get quite technocratic very quickly. And it's easy to kind of start to miss kind of big picture structural issues like, you know, social justice. It, it certainly can. One of the things I appreciate about me being the, the CEO of this organization is there's going to be no issue about that with me. Of course. Right. Yeah. And it's going to be centered to what I do. Yeah. And I feel that that's going to resonate in terms of being an authentic priority of, of what we are doing here to make that happen. Um, you know, every, every speaker challenge is the statement includes in order for the city to achieve its carbon and equity goals, the most important obstacle to overcome is so it is integrated into the fabric of this entire process. Yeah. And it is attracting the support and engagement of just tremendous leaders. We had Shalonda Baker, who is now the deputy director of energy justice for the Department of Energy. Yeah. She was a speaker. And I just posted that up on LinkedIn. I highly recommend you listen to it. She makes such a powerful presentation of how systemic racism, our commitment to an energy future have to be reconciled together. Yeah. It, it was just so powerful. 
That's great. I'm I'm so glad you're focused on that. I mean, obviously one of the major challenges with these structural issues is that so much of the power that resides in sectors like real estate, like energy, um, ignores uh, these low to moderate income communities um, and all of this sort of impact sort of fall on those folks. And I think it it can be challenging when you pull together a lot of people, when you start to make a list of stakeholders, it immediately excludes all those folks because they don't, they don't own the power in this space. And so it's really, really important to bring that front and center as I'm not telling you anything you don't know, obviously. Um, but it's, it's great to see that you're so focused on that with this platform. Well, I appreciate you saying it though, because it's just an awareness that requires effort. You know, the, the default awareness on this is just to, it's too compartmentalized. It's not yeah. appreciating how interconnected things are. And uh, one thing I've just come to appreciate so much about this format of having speakers talk about critical obstacles is it exposes you to pain and it exposes you to pain and consequences and urgency, which is a very difficult leadership trait to drive as a leader. How do you drive urgency? But these leaders, when they come and present these challenges, that's what they're doing. And it, it starts to seep into you. Like now I, I think about the words of Suzanne DeRoche when she talked about this growing forecasted energy cost burden that comes with the electrification of everything. Yep. Yep. If we're not an equitable society now, just look at what happened with COVID in terms of what the repercussions are going to be. Um, yep. I'm grateful that's in my consciousness now to think about things in terms of solutions. Uh, so it is really important. And then the other one that comes to mind is with this woman, Molly Poppy. Molly Poppy is the chief innovation officer for Chicago Transit Authority. Molly was going to talk about something very different when she was her turn to be a speaker challenger for Chicago. But she changed everything to talk about the existential threat to transit right now if people don't come back to work in cities. If a forecasted 20% reduction in people coming into city to work happens, that will be catastrophic for mass transit. Yeah. And because it has this cascade effect, right? People don't come in, people don't stay to have dinner, people don't stay for the happy hour. Yep. Now a sudden funding justification starts being undermined. Now essential workers can't get that bus. There's no, it, it's so connected. It is, you know, and the, the issue with transit, of course, is so deeply connected to these justice issues because, you know, wealthy people choose to use transit or not. <laughs> the, the people that don't have that luxury absolutely rely on it for really every aspect of their lives. And, and I think we forget that at our peril. Definitely. The word you used, urgency, I, th I think is one of the really, really critical things to keep in mind in this space because in a system where all the inertia is towards continuing to disadvantage poorer communities anytime we let our you know the foot off the gas the inertia of that system moves further forward and that is the challenge for the rest of us <laughs> is is to continue to feel that urgency every day and 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 making sure that platforms like yours hopefully the work that we're doing here at BX and everyone in our space are continuing to provide a reason to advance that urgency, I think is really, really important every day. Every day. I mean, it's, it was such an epiphany for me that I needed to take this from being a platform to a high stakes professional arena of competition because there's urgency in competition, 
right? You've got two minutes left in the fourth quarter and it's the Super Bowl. Yeah. There's urgency. There's focus, right? There's clarity. Somehow we need to prompt that into this fight, a one yeah. where winning really matters. And yeah. we just so hard to kind of galvanize that spirit. And then what happens as a result, because we don't, then we are so ill-prepared to deal with working at fast-paced critical issues like COVID. Our human response, the U.S. response to COVID is a great example of how well we play under stress. And when urgency is critical, we didn't do very well, to say the least. (laughs) No. Thinking about the sort of ideal participants in your platform, are, are there major players that you wish were involved, but you sort of haven't been able to grab their attention? And I don't mean to like name and shame individual companies. I mean more like ty- types of organizations or, or, or types of agencies, that sort of thing. Uh, it's a great question. It's one I'm asking myself constantly because my role is really to curate the most kind of electric, fun word, uh, <laughs> kind of ecosystem of leaders who want engagement to action, right? And are willing to play to win for it. So it's exciting when you bring someone in who has that as a large company with massive resources. We just brought DC Green Bank into the work we do in DC. Mm-hmm. That was electrifying to have them, we're in and we've got resources, right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, or that we have WSP, which is massive um engineering firm, services firm, global, they're all in on our platform. And that's just massive. So I would say the ones that I'm really excited to make sure they're aware of our work and get more engaged are one companies that are making verbal commitments to cities around decarbonization and equity. So Verizon is doing some amazing things that I'm I'm really excited about. We're working with uh, Ken Jack, Um, He came from Con Edison. Now he leads the fleet electrification and operations at Verizon. He was a speaker in Boston. Now he leads a task force uh, with a great group. There's a company that's going to be involved in the digital divide that has a massive fleet, right? That has real ties to cities flourishing and and being equitable. Uh, Microsoft is another company that I would say in terms of their commitment to move to action, Amazon to action, all very much connected to the health of cities. Um, um, And those are kind of on the private side, but I'm also interested to deepening my relationships with Bloomberg and and the Gates Foundation because my work, I'm a for-profit entity based on as much of an altruistic motivation as I can but I know where, where I want to, why I'm doing this. And it seems that it aligns well with things like the mayoral challenge yeah. and these things. And if I can be any type of a platform to support their intentions to action, I want them to know about what I'm doing. And I mean, an unintended benefit to COVID is that everything we do have got, has gone online. Yeah. And that actually has created an incredible opportunity for us to scale this platform. Yeah. And so there's a chance where a conversation with a foundation or you know DOE to see how this goes from four cities to 24, it's possible now that I didn't see possible before without my kids not knowing my name anymore and <laughs> a whole bunch of other yeah. bad things happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like uh, like COVID in some ways has expanded 
your reach because the lift to kind of get involved no longer involves travel and and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm, there's certainly when we're in person, it's powerful because we do a dinner the night before. We have if you go to our website, you can see all this beautiful footage of people really getting to communicate in this environment we've created uh, in the breakout rooms in person and so on. But by taking it online and using Zoom breakout rooms, I'm now getting the CEO of New York ISO. You know, Rich Dewey was so involved mm. and generous with his time and his team to really talk about these issues that I would have been so hard to have that from Rich had we been in person and he needed to get into Manhattan. Um, you know, CEO of ComEd, CEO of Pepco, right? the, the head of operations for DC Water, they're all making time to, to be there. So that's been a that's been a big plus. Yeah, I mean we've we've experienced similar, you know, lots of uh, larger numbers of people um, joining events, which has been great from you know wildly different places, and we've had regularly people from over twenty countries mm. <laughs> at the events for our New York City based nonprofit, which is encouraging. But you also lose some of that organic networking um, that happens before and after these types of things, and so. In the future, I hope we can kind of hybridize that so we, we figure out how to get both um, out of this type of engagement. Well, my, my vision on the hybridization is, one, I think there's a way I can stream more the speaker challenge aspect of what I do, especially into the participating universities that support my work, mm. uh, Northeastern, NYU, gosh, George Washington University now in D.C., this is a great channel for them to see problems on the front lines from real leaders and talk about it, the real, what's really happening. And right. so I want them to know about this and our fellowship program to, that brings in graduate students and, and certain undergrad students to work and support this model is a really nice virtuous circle that's being developed there. That's great. Um, so I'm going to stream more the speaker challenges, get more people the opportunity to vote on which one they think is important. Right. I think the other thing I'm going to look at is in between our sessions to find times where we can be outside in nature and together that the, the, the risk level is low. Yeah. So let's think about Q3, about doing something outside in a park where we can kind of convene again. That's, that's what on my mind goes to right now. Yeah, that's great. So sort of looking ahead, we have a new federal administration, thank goodness. Hmm. And there's, you know, in all the places you're working, there's already strong support for these issues at state and city levels. Does the new kind of nationwide leadership change the prospects for your work in the coming kind of two to four years? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is all about intention to action and results. So if the if the intention's unclear like it was before right and the motivation was warped before <laughs> with that all getting clarified and aligned uh when you've got you know such awesome leaders now in roles that there's no question of their intention or motivation i'm very hopeful and i just want to make sure that the work i'm i'm doing from the support of all my sponsors who've really made this possible as an arena or platform um, is understood as their, this is for them, right? This is for them to activate change. If you look at what happened in the recovery, 
the greatest challenge is when the government says, we want to put a lot of money towards this. We know it's important and we got to do something. And then you look at the efficacy or the results of that financial commitment. And you want that to be a home run. Right. You don't want it to be a Solyndra situation. You just want it to be so powerful that it just confirms that government's on our side. Government wants us to have a healthy humanity as a country and, and it elevates your trust. It's so important to have stakeholder alignment, awareness, all those things seeding an opportunity like this because you want them to be successful. And I think the work we've done, thanks to our sponsors, puts us in a position where we can be a really valuable resource. I mean, look at the role Jigger Shaw has now. You know, I've got DC Water, the largest energy user in the District of Columbia, saying we need to we need to find a way to bundle all of our potential projects into one bundle and then get financing and support for all of them and, and talk about it from the lens of equity, resilience, energy burden, not little projects. So I'm, I'm very hopeful. That's great. HD, I've really enjoyed uh, this conversation very much. Um, do you have any, any last thoughts before we break? Um, I'm very appreciative that you thought to reach out to me. And, you know, I want to thank my sponsors who have believed in our work and have helped us grow to where it is today. I mean, their leadership has made this possible. And I think for those listening, you know, check out what we're doing on LinkedIn. Follow us there because you can see summaries from every quarter and you can request invitations to be in the room. You know, th there are tangible outcomes that are coming from this that are just amazing. Um, so many great ones. But one of them is led by Harris Scher, and, and that name will be familiar to several people listening. He was at NYSERDA. He's now at the New York City uh, Cultural Affairs Group. He's part of the leadership team of a task force. Uh, this was a great one we did uh, on IoT tech and innovation. Mark Chambers provided opening remarks. Pat Sapinsley was there. Joe White, Mahesh Sudarkhan from IBM, and Charlotte Matthews. Yeah. Charlotte Matthews ultimately won with her obstacle statement about the importance of current building performance methodologies that could promote grid responsive, efficient buildings that would align with the goals of Local Law 97. Um, the team that won in terms of a 12 month solution was Harris's team around, okay, let's find ways, pathways, and approaches that could make this happen and engage the real estate community in the process. So they convened a roundtable with J.P. Flattery and Robin Beavers and Francesca Spinelli and then Eric Davis. And they really got into this issue. How are we going to do it? And what I, what I wanted to share is that when these teams commit, they don't know how it's all going to work out. They're just committed to an outcome. Right which is brave in itself. Yeah. Um, and what they had to do this roundtable because they were, they were stuck. Like, how do we move the needle on this issue? And some of the takeaways from this roundtable that I'm showing on the screen was, you know, JP was, um, he was really helpful in helping people understand that you really have to make sure building owners are in a position that they see the investment in turning their building into this virtual power plant and, and having all these important societal benefits to the future, that there's a path that they can take to do it where the risk doesn't outweigh the benefit. Otherwise, they're not well positioned for success. 
And that brought up a whole conversation of, okay, let's just start with the outcome and come backwards. Imagine if we could get building owners to, you know, invest in peak load management of 20, 30% of their peak demand with battery storage and other distributed energy resource solutions. What would be the positive impact on that in terms of the build out by Con Edison, in terms of the cost burden to others, in terms of all these things, in terms of what if Texas happens, right? Right. And then let's determine the value of that and find a way to present that in some type of a actual payment to the owner because it's more than just helping them at that point. Yeah. It's great to see an example of how this dialogue uh, works. Um, Harris, we know Harris share uh, well, uh, both from his time at NYSERDA and also his office at Cultural Affairs is on the second floor of the building that Building Energy Exchange uh, is lucky enough to live in uh, with DCAS as our, as our landlord. Um, so we, we know them well, and it's great to see Harris kind of advancing this. Yeah, it's a great group. Great. HD, thank you so much again uh, for sharing your work with us uh, today uh, and, um, and looking forward to more conversations uh, in the future. But thank you again for your, for your time today. Oh, it was a real pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. It's a- you bet.